On February 20th, 1910, 23-year-old nationalist Ibrahim Alwardani brought Egypt to a standstill with just six shots from his gun. Prime Minister Boutros Ghali lay on the steps of the Ministry of Justice, clinging to life. When the ambulance arrived, Ghali was miraculously still alive. He was whisked away to nearby Dr. Milton Hospital. The country held its breath, wondering what was going to happen. The Islamic head of state, known as the Khedive, rushed to the hospital. He approached the bedside of the unconscious prime minister with tears in his eyes. At that very moment, Ghali opened his eyes and the Khedive rejoiced, thanking the Lord. But his joy was short-lived. Three of Alwardani's six bullets remained lodged in Ghali's body. The doctors decided that surgery was necessary to repair his punctured liver and stomach. The best doctors in Egypt operated on Ghali, but his wounds proved too severe. He died one day after the shooting on February 21st, 1910, at the age of 64. Ibrahim Alwardani had achieved his first goal. Boutros Ghali was dead. His second objective was to secure liberty for the Egyptian people, but he wouldn't survive long enough to know whether this mission would be accomplished. One death can change the world. At least, that's what assassins believe. Welcome to Assassinations, a ParCast original. Every Monday, we examine the famous assassins of history and the men and women who were assassinated. I'm your host, Bill Thomas. And I'm your host, Kate Leonard. This is our second episode on Boutros Ghali, the Egyptian prime minister who was killed by Egyptian nationalist Ibrahim Alwardani on February 20th, 1910. You can find episodes of Assassinations and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Assassinations for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Assassinations in the search bar. At Parcast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. Last week, we followed Ghali's career in politics and the unpopular decisions he made in cooperation with British colonial forces. He was seen by many as putting the interests of the occupying Brits over the needs of his own country. This week, we'll cover the investigation and trial of Alwardani, as well as the future of the nationalist movement in Egypt. Boutros Ghali spent his life working in the government, serving the people of Egypt. Sixteen months before his death, in November of 1908, he became the first Coptic Christian to be appointed prime minister. But Ghali faced widespread criticism for cooperating with the colonial British government. A growing nationalist movement demanded self-rule for Egyptians. Inspired by their message, Ibrahim Alwardani chose to take the future of Egypt into his own hands. As Prime Minister Ghali was rushed to the hospital, Alwardani was immediately taken in for questioning. 
But the police didn't need to work hard to get the truth out of him. When asked why he shot the prime minister, he replied, because he betrayed the nation. He spoke politely and clearly, almost as if he'd rehearsed, and he remained remarkably calm throughout the interrogation. He immediately told the police his name and age and carefully took them through his life story. He spoke about his father's death four years prior and his time studying pharmacology in Europe. There, he met other nationalists and anarchists and grew inspired to join the fight for Egypt's freedom. Even though Al-Wardani was a member of the Nationalist Watani Party, a political group that fought for Egyptian independence from British rule, he insisted he'd acted alone in the assassination. He was also careful to explain that even though he was Muslim and Ghali was Christian, religion was not a motivating factor in the murder. Al-Wardani's hatred of Ghali was based on political disagreements, not religious ones. He was motivated by the four major scandals of Ghali's political career, which we covered in more detail last episode. All were incidents in which the Egyptian people felt that Ghali took the side of the British over his own country. Al-Wardani also intended his assassination to send a larger message to the Egyptian governing elite. Compromising with the British was hurting their country. The time for independence was now. And, as he hoped, Alwardani's actions brought attention to him and his movement. Ghali's death was immediate front-page news in Egypt, and coverage soon spread back to England. One day, Alwardani had been an anonymous pharmacist. The next, everyone knew his name. An English-language newspaper, the Egyptian Gazette, disapprovingly noted that he was the most popular man in Egypt. Lord Cromer, the former British Comptroller General in Egypt, wrote that Ghali was certainly the most capable of living Egyptian ministers. He worked honestly and devotedly in the true interests of his country. Ghali's death, according to Lord Cromer, was a foul crime. Many of the powerful in Egypt began to fear for their own lives. British magazine The Spectator's obituary commented, It is a strange and ominous event that the first truly national prime minister under our rule should have been murdered in the name of nationalism. Officially, the nationalist Watani party denounced Alwardani's actions, but in the streets, he was celebrated. Songs and poems were written in his honor. Within days, photographs of him were hung on every street in Cairo with the caption, Alwardani, the champion of patriotism. Nationalist and tabloid papers ran editorials discussing every aspect of his life in jail, from his habit of reading political books to his meals of lamb cutlets and pasta. They even noted that he slept well at night. While the nationalists were rallying around Alwardani, the rest of Egypt gathered to say goodbye to their prime minister. But even his funeral was a site of rebellion. As Ghali's casket processed through the streets of Cairo in a carriage, the path was lined with soldiers, priests, and Egyptian citizens. Young nationalists and others who were critical of Ghali had also come to witness the spectacle. One of the men accompanying the casket was Ghali's servant, Asad. 
He wore his customary red and gold servant uniform, but draped a black handkerchief over it to mark the somber occasion. That had the unintended consequence of making him look like a Coptic priest, which only inflamed the already heightened tensions between Muslim nationalists, British loyalists, and Coptic Christians on each side of the issue. As the carriage passed through Opera Square and approached the Coptic Cathedral, the crowd caught sight of acid. Whether it was his clothing or the simmering nationalist anger, we'll never know. But a group of young Muslim students charged the carriage and tried to overturn the coffin. The orderly streets became a mob with dozens caught in the scrambling and scuffling. Acid defended himself with his carriage key, a sharp-edged skeleton key similar to a modern pocket knife. A supportive Englishman named John McPherson scattered the attackers with a whip. Police and soldiers armed with batons rushed at the mob. The two groups pushed, shoved, and fought in the streets for 10 solid minutes. But eventually, the police forced the rioters into retreat, and the funeral was able to proceed. The violence made it clear. The assassination did not put an end to nationalist tensions. It only inflamed them. And now, the movement had a champion in Alwardani. Soon after Ghali was laid to rest, the government cracked down on the public celebration of the assassin. Newspaper vendors who printed and sold his photos were brought in for questioning by the police. 35 people were arrested at pro-Alwardani demonstrations. The Egyptians defending Alwardani didn't believe he'd been wrongly accused. There was never any doubt that he was the person who pulled the trigger. The question at hand was whether Alwardani should be celebrated as a rebel hero or punished as a criminal. And if he were to be punished, should he pay for his crime with his life? Many in the British and Egyptian elite, as well as the Coptic community, pushed for the death penalty. But others were concerned that killing Alwardani could further transform him into a martyr. It seemed that no matter how Alwardani's trial played out, one or more groups would be incited to violence and plunge the nation into bloodshed. Up next, the trial of Ibrahim al-Wardani decides the fate of the nationalist movement. Now, back to the story. In the weeks after Prime Minister Boutros Ghali's death in February 1910, the nation became increasingly divided between nationalists who opposed their British overlords and the Egyptian elite who believed in cooperation. Ibrahim Alwardani went on trial for murder in April 1910, two months after the assassination. The trial was ticketed and attendance was limited to 200 people. The nationalist student groups, Alwardani's most vocal supporters, were not allowed in the courtroom. The 23-year-old Alwardani was under constant guard by both Coptic and European police. Guards also lined the streets around the courthouse. When too many protesters gathered outside, they were dispersed with a water hose. Alwardani's defense team was made up of three lawyers, all of whom volunteered for the case. They were all active members of the Watani party and sympathized with Alwardani's beliefs even if they disagreed with his actions. One of his lawyers, Ibrahim al-Hilbawi, 
had been a prosecutor in the Den Shawai trial, where Ghali had sentenced four Egyptian peasants to death for their violent scuffle with English soldiers. Al-Hilbawi had also been strongly criticized by Egyptian nationalists for participating in the case and was looking to redeem himself by defending al-Wardani. Another one of the lawyers, Ahmad Lutfi, was so sympathetic that he let al-Wardani pick the name of his newborn son. He chose Nasser, Arabic for victory. Since al-Wardani had definitely pulled the trigger, the defense had to get creative with their strategy. They argued that Ghali would have survived the shooting if not for the extensive surgery he received. His death was due to a medical error, not assassination. The judges appointed a special medical commission to investigate these accusations. Three different doctors testified, one Egyptian and two British. The English doctors agreed that the gunshot wounds had killed Ghali. The Egyptian doctor, however, raised doubts. He asserted that the operation had taken too long, involved too many unnecessary personnel, and may not have been critical care at all. The prosecution pressed hard to poke holes in the defense's medical testimony. They demonstrated that the Egyptian doctor in the operating room was too short to have really seen what was going on, calling into question the credibility of his testimony. The defense also tried to show that al-Wardani was not of sound mind and therefore could not be held responsible for his actions. They brought witnesses who called into question his mental fitness. A housekeeper recounted how al-Wardani had once threatened to commit suicide. Others described his grandfather and uncle as having questionable mental health. Another said that his parents had separated for a time when he was a baby, implying that this unorthodox living arrangement may have caused permanent emotional damage. A psychiatrist in Switzerland wrote a statement saying that he had treated al-Wardani for depression. Another doctor said he had monomania, a form of partial insanity. His mother even testified that in the days before the assassination, he'd suffered from nightmares. The defense emphasized that Alwardani was a good person who had momentarily lost control. All the witnesses agreed he was quiet, polite, and helpful. But he'd been consumed with passion for his nationalist cause to the point of insanity. Despite the defense's temporary insanity argument, there was no doubt that Alwardani had been perfectly rational and calm when explaining his actions to the police. All the witnesses testifying to his mental state couldn't shake that underlying fact. The prosecutor in the trial, Abdul Khalik Sarvat, had been on the steps of the Ministry of Justice and had witnessed the shooting firsthand, which lent an air of credibility to his arguments. Regarding the assassin's political leanings, Sarvat acknowledged that Alwardani may have been right to criticize Ghali, but he didn't have the education or experience to fully understand the workings of the government. Additionally, Alwardani didn't have the right to serve as judge, jury, and executioner over Ghali's life. In becoming an assassin, he took the decision-making power away from the Egyptian people. Exactly what he had criticized Ghali for doing. In the end, Sarvat asked for the death penalty to 
cut out a harmful, noxious malignancy, which it was feared would influence the minds of the growing generation. The sentence, like the assassination and trial, referred to a larger issue than just Alwardani himself. And the nation waited with bated breath to see whether the nationalist movement and Alwardani himself would be destroyed. There was still a legal question about whether or not the death penalty was even possible. Egypt's penal code was based on the French constitution, which had abolished the death penalty as punishment for political crimes. In addition, the Sharia, the Muslim religious code, prohibited the death penalty unless a non-binding legal opinion was issued by an Islamic jurist called a mufti. There also remained the possibility that the British Consul General, Sir Eldon Gorst, could commute the death sentence rather than risk a public uprising over the execution. But in the end, in the spring of 1910, al was sentenced to death by hanging. Some in the Watani party disapproved, but surprisingly, there were no widespread protests or violence in the aftermath of the verdict. Instead, the Egyptians quietly mourned the loss of their most popular son. Al-Wardani was returned to his cell without fanfare to await his punishment. The trial was complete, but Ghali's assassination had left unfinished business, namely the unresolved matter of the Suez Canal. The British, who retained majority ownership of the canal, wanted to extend their contract with Egypt for 40 more years. Instead of expiring in 1968 as planned, the proposed deal would keep British control of the canal through 2008. The Egyptian government had to decide whether it would sell off its future rights to the canal in exchange for a large lump sum and a share of the profits. Shortly after Ghali's death, a rumor circulated that papers were found in his pocket showing an agreement to extend the Suez Canal concessions for a substantial bribe. While this was likely untrue, it eroded what little support the deal had. On March 21, 1910, one month after Ghali's assassination, the General Assembly presented their official report to the public. They concluded that while the lump payment by the British would be a short-term windfall, Egypt would lose money in the long run by sharing profits for an additional 40 years. Future generations would suffer if the agreement was signed. On April 4th, the Assembly officially rejected the Canal Concession's proposal. This was a decisive win for nationalists, at least in the short term. But even with this victory, Ghali's assassination ultimately set back the nationalist movement in Egypt. The movement separated into hardliners and moderates, those who supported Alwardani's tactics and those who didn't. And though Alwardani swore that the killing was not religiously motivated, it also divided Copts and Muslims. To combat this, the General Assembly called a meeting at the headquarters of a Nationalist Party newspaper to urge a dialogue between Copts and Muslims. Both groups shared a desire for constitutional rule, and they knew that they needed to work together in order to achieve self-government. The meeting ended successfully with calls of, Long live the Speaker, long live the Copts, long live the Muslims. Later in the summer of 1910, there was a special meeting of the Coptic Congress. 
Gali's youngest son, Wasif, then 32, was in attendance and was one of the many who urged cooperation with Muslims. He said, I will join those who have killed my father rather than join those who want to kill my country. But even as the two groups pledged to work together, it was difficult to overcome the divisive shadow of the assassin Ibrahim al-Wardani, who continued to await his fate. Al-Wardani spent his final days in jail reading the Quran and political books. He did not regret his actions and was writing a new Muslim constitution for Egypt, even though he knew it would never be read or used. His mother visited him the day before he was set to die. She was heartbroken and furious. But Al-Wardani said that everyone has to die, and this way his name would live on forever. Al-Wardani was hanged on June 28, 1910, at the age of 23. It was done early in the morning and without any public announcement to prevent crowds from gathering. A proud nationalist to his final moments, his last words were reportedly, liberty and freedom were granted by God. Though Al-Wardani had achieved public fame, he died almost completely alone. But despite his solitary death, he still remained a national hero to many. After word of his execution spread, students took to the streets, chanting, Al-Wardani, Al-Wardani, who slew the Nazarene. A student at the Khedival School wrote on the blackboard, The oppressor was slain. Long live the killer. Law school students posted pamphlets declaring, Al-Wardani is dead. Long live Al-Wardani. When he was laid to rest, his tomb became a gathering place for young nationalists in the Watani party. But this public adulation angered the British government. Eldon Gorst, who had served as the British Consul General in Egypt since 1907, was known for his attempts to transfer more local control to the Egyptians. Unlike his predecessors, he had an interest in eventually creating a British-style constitutional government in the country, even though, in his own words, there is no history of representative institutions in Islam. The violent loss of the prime minister made Gorst seem like a weak leader, and British officials began to lose faith in his approach to governance. Gorst responded by cracking down on dissent. In July 1910, just one month after Alwardani's death, a book of 39 nationalist poems was published, some of which glorified the assassin as a hero. Gorst objected to the poems as seditious and subversive. He issued arrest warrants for the editors, forcing at least one to flee the country. The British saw Gali's assassination as more evidence that Egypt was an immature nation and that its people were prone to violence. This reinforced their colonial perspective that non-white, non-Christian people could not be trusted to rule themselves. Al-Wardani had hoped that his crime would spur Egyptians to reject collaboration with the British. Instead, it told Britain that they needed to hold on to Egypt with a tighter grip. In June of 1911, Gorst was succeeded as Consul General by Lord Kitchener, a 61-year-old army officer and colonial administrator who had previously served in South America and India. Kitchener was known as a strong man and hardliner. 
He abandoned Gorst's collaborative approach and ignored the Khedive, preferring to directly rule through British officials. Kitchener quickly turned his attention to the nationalist problem. He and the police suspected that secret societies and nationalist groups were plotting to assassinate key government officials. They'd have to strike quickly to avoid more deaths like Boutros Ghali's. Adding fuel to the fire, some papers and letters found at Alwardani's house suggested that he had formed a secret violent group. These suspicions were later proven false, but the evidence was enough to spur the police to be increasingly hostile to the nationalist movement. No one else was charged in Ghali's death, but there was an increase in investigations of nationalist groups in general, and it was only a matter of time before they found what they'd been looking for, credible plots to enact violence. Special police bureaus zeroed in on the Society for the Encouragement of Free Education, which had a dozen members, half of whom were students. Some of the group's plans were little more than half-formed ideas, but other plots were far more dangerous. One society member, a nationalist named Mahmoud Tahir Al-Urabi, attempted to assassinate Lord Kitchener on June 30, 1912. He lay in wait at a railroad station, gun in hand, ready to shoot his target. But before he could act, he was startled by the appearance of a police officer on a bicycle patrolling the area. He was spotted by a British soldier named Captain Fitzgerald, a member of Lord Kitchener's guard. The guard chased him down and arrested him on the spot. Soon after, the police received an anonymous tip that Alurabi's conspirators would meet on July 1, 1912, at a local cafe in Cairo. That day, four officers hid themselves in the cafe, posing undercover as patrons. They listened in as the group discussed the failed attempts on Lord Kitchener. But undeterred, they chose a new target. They hatched a plan for a different conspirator, Mohammed Imam Waqid, to go to Europe and kill the Khedive. The target was different, but the plan was the same as Alwardani's kill an important official to force a nationalist revolution. Armed with this information, the police trailed the group as they left the cafe and walked towards a tram stop. When the coast was clear, the officers leapt into action. One of the conspirators reacted quickly, sprinting away from the group, never to be caught. Three of the others were arrested and tried as conspirators. Wakid, the would-be assassin, was sentenced to 15 years of penal servitude, and the other two were sentenced to 15 years of detention. Many accused the police of exaggerating what they'd heard, or even inventing the scenario completely. But Alwardani's successful assassination, along with Alurabi's failed attempt, had convinced the British that Egyptian nationals were hell-bent on violence and must be stopped at all costs. Their resolution would only heighten the political tensions and lead to more deaths. Up next, Egypt demands its independence on the world stage as violence escalates back at home. And now, back to the story. The young nationalist Ibrahim al-Wardani became an overnight hero in Egypt after assassinating the Prime Minister Boutros Ghali. 
But his popularity could not save him from being hanged for his crimes at age 23 in June of 1910. Under Lord Kitchener, the new consul general appointed in 1911, violence in Egypt continued to escalate. Posters in the streets of Cairo encouraged people to revolt against the British. The people who hung them up faced arrests and prison. Even though Egypt was controlled by the British, it was still technically part of the Ottoman Empire. So when World War I broke out on July 28, 1914, the Ottomans and Great Britain found themselves on opposing sides. Egypt was immediately declared an English protectorate, making it an official part of the British Empire for the first time in the two countries' complicated history. Although the Ottoman Empire objected, England already had the troops and the military influence to back up their stance. They imposed martial law over Egypt. There was little fighting in Egypt throughout the war, but the British used their new protectorate as a staging ground for an invasion of Syria. Troops forcibly seized villages, crops, and animals, all in the name of the war effort. Egyptians struggled as the colonial government artificially suppressed cotton prices, causing the cost of living to skyrocket. But when the war concluded on November 11, 1918, Egyptians and English alike saw a potential solution to the nation's simmering tensions. Earlier that year, in his famous 14-point speech, U.S. President Woodrow Wilson advocated that the terms of peace should include the right to self-governance for people around the world. An Egyptian delegation traveled to the Versailles Peace Conference on January 18, 1919, to advocate for independence. Ghali's son, 41-year-old Wasif, was nominated to join them. Wasif Ghali was a lawyer and experienced government bureaucrat who had worked for the Khedive during his father's term as prime minister. Not only was Wasif an experienced legislator and an important voice for the Coptic minority, he had married a French woman named Louise Majorelle and was living in France at the time. Whereas his father was committed to working with the British, Wasif made a powerful demand for Egyptian independence. He proclaimed, After we fought with the Allies and suffered with them, and after we contributed to the joint victory, we joyfully greeted the ceasefire decision and considered it as the dawn of a just, permanent, and bright peace. But the British refused to grant the Egyptians what they wished. In protest, the entire Egyptian cabinet resigned rather than continue to serve the British. This included Ghali's eldest son, 47-year-old Nagib, who was a minister in the Department of Foreign Affairs. Perhaps Nagib's politics were different than his father's, or perhaps the conventional wisdom of his generation was different, but Ghali's sons were firmly on the side of Egyptian independence and were not looking to compromise. Another leader on their side was a prominent lawyer and politician named Saad Zaglul, head of the nationalist Waft Party. After the delegation's demands at the Versailles Peace Conference fell through, he tried and failed to make his case directly to the British government in London. Although these attempts were not successful, Zaglul was seen as dangerous by the British. In March 1919, he was arrested by British officers and exiled to the island of Malta. This was the final straw for the Egyptian people. 
the streets erupted in violence. Protests and strikes brought the country to a standstill. There were coordinated attacks on telephone lines, railroads, and other important infrastructure. Rebels murdered eight British officers on a train from Aswan to Cairo on March 18, 1919. Peasants attacked and destroyed large landholdings that were owned either by the British or Egyptians who supported them. And some rural areas rebelled by breaking away from the central government and establishing their own informal republics centered around each village. The British tried to contain the outrage, even allowing Zaglul to return to Egypt. But the nationalist spark that had once inspired al-Wardani could no longer be extinguished. The British eventually decided that the country was more trouble than it was worth and declared Egypt an independent state on February 28, 1922. We know that Ghali's death did not directly achieve al-Wardani's desire for Egyptian independence. But did it help or hurt the nationalist cause? It's impossible to know for sure. Historians have long speculated how the world would be different if Boutros Ghali had not been assassinated. Ghali was heavily invested in compromising with the British. But after his death, more leaders in the Egyptian government vocally opposed colonial rule. Perhaps these officials realized they could pay a price for their cooperation. On April 4, 1910, less than two months after Ghali's death, the General Assembly took a stand against the British agenda and rejected the Suez Canal Compromise. This ensured that the Suez Canal would return to Egyptian ownership in 1968. As it turns out, Egypt regained control of the canal ahead of schedule. After World War II, Egypt canceled several treaties with the UK and forced them to remove their troops from the country. The Suez Canal was officially returned to Egyptian control in July of 1956. Ghali's assassination may have played some part in accelerating the return of this valuable asset to the Egyptian people. Had he survived, disputes about control of the Suez Canal would have been drawn out, potentially aggravating tensions between the British and the Egyptians. Despite the success of the Suez deal, Ghali's death may have hurt the Egyptian nationalist cause in the long term. It cut short all the work he was doing to improve relations with the British government. There were even rumors that Ghali was secretly drafting a new Egyptian constitution that would remove British control, though no evidence of this was ever brought forward. If such a plan was in the works, Al-Wardani put an end to it. British Consul General Sir Eldon Gorst stepped down for health reasons after Al-Wardani was convicted. But if the British hadn't been so concerned about possible future assassinations, he may not have been replaced by such a hardliner. The new Consul General, Lord Kitchener, dismantled all the work Gorst did to share power with the Egyptian people. If some other individual had continued Gorst's work, it's possible that Egypt could have achieved independence sooner or with less violence. Whether he intended to or not, Al-Wardani started a trend of assassination in Egypt. There was a cluster of murders of government officials between 1910 and 1915, along with more after each world war. Boutros Ghali is only one of three Egyptian prime ministers to be assassinated in the 20th century. 
The others, Ahmed Mahir Pasha and Mahmoud Fami al-Nokrashi Pasha, were slain in 1945 and 1948, respectively. Without Alwardani's example, it's possible they could have lived. Before Alwardani, assassinations were seen as a European phenomenon. Even though he hated British influence, Alwardani ended up using European anarchic tactics to advocate for Egyptian independence. While it's hard to say if the Egyptian nationalist movement was helped or hurt by Boutros Ghali's death, we do know that Ibrahim Alwardani, like all assassins, permanently changed the course of his nation's future. Thanks for listening to Assassinations. We'll be back Monday. You can find all episodes of Assassinations and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Assassinations, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Assassinations on Spotify, just open the app and type Assassinations in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Assassinations was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It's produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Paul Liebeskind, Maggie Admire, and Travis Clark. This episode of Assassinations was written by Margaret LeBron and stars Kate Leonard and Bill Thomas. 